You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates on the Pet Life Radio Network. This is the unique show where each episode is focused on an animal advocate whose work helps improve or save the lives of animals and makes our planet a better place. I'm Keith Sanderson, creator and host of Awesome Advocates and the sidekick of Max A. Pooch, the canine champion for animals and the environment. Our guest today is Dr. Alice Villalobos. Dr. Alice is a past president of the American Association of the Human-Animal Bond Veterinarians. She is a pioneer in the field of cancer care for companion animals and a founding member of the Veterinary Cancer Society. Dr. Alice is a leader in writing and lecturing in the rapidly growing field of veterinary oncology and end-of-life care. In addition, she has two practices. They are Paw Spice and Animal Oncology Consultation Service and is the founder of Peter Zippy Memorial Fund for Animals. We'll meet Dr. Alice in a moment and learn if there is a difference in how animals of veterinarian medicine and medical doctors perceive end-of-life care, what the probability is of dogs and cats having cancer, what the universal human bond scale is, and more. However, first a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. It's DesignerPetSweaters.com, the latest fashion trends for our furry friends. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates. I'm your host, Keith Sanderson. Our guest today is Dr. Alice Villalobos, a leader in the rapidly growing field of veterinary oncology and end-of-life care. Hi, Dr. Alice. Hello, hello, Keith. Great to be here. Dr. Alice, you know, despite your long list of credentials, you're much more than an academic. You're a shirt sleeve kind of gal, I think. You're a working veterinarian. Yes, I am. And uh, I was trained to be a clinical scientist. And so when I treat my patients, I try to follow their progress and try to use what I think is working and maintains a high quality of life because so many of my patients are older and they have advanced cancer when they come to see me. And they've been, you know, basically not given up upon, but uh, they have a very poor prognosis. And so they are at the end of life. And so we want to make sure they have a wonderful quality of life at that time. Now, your two practices are paw spice and Actually, also... I pronounce it pospice, so pospice. it rhymes with hospice, right. Ah, okay. Although it is a spicy way to, you know, to flavor up the end-of-life care, I do like the concept of paw spice, <laughs> but uh, we do pronounce it to rhyme with hospice so family members know that we are dealing with a pet that is at the end of life generally meaning the last 25% of their lifespan. And it can be, you know, years that some of our patients do survive, but uh, the basic thing, the concept is that they are probably diagnosed with a disease that will probably take them from Uh us. And then my cancer practice, Animal Oncology Consultation Service, I've been working along with that practice for many, many years. And I do a lot of consulting, not only in person with the patients, but with the doctors and with clients, uh, pet owners all over the whole United States and Europe. Wow. Wow. That must keep you really busy, particularly in a field that's evolving as quickly as uh, your field. Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, I love it. So um, I'm really happy to have a full agenda. (laughs) 
Well, that's good. Hey, on the sad side, I, I, while I was doing research, I really didn't realize cancer is such a common disease in cats and dogs. And just how apt is a cat or dog to be diagnosed with cancer during its life? Well, if you have a dog and he's under the age of 10, it's going to be 25% of dogs under the age of 10 will have cancer. And it's surprising some of them are young, just like, you know, when you hear about children having cancer. Uh, there are certain types of cancer that appear in young children and certainly in young animals, dogs. And when the dog gets to be 10, half of them will die of cancer. So that's a big disease. It is probably the largest disease we deal with in geriatric dogs. The other problem with kitty cats is that uh, they don't get cancer as often, but when they do, it's so secretive. We don't know that much <laughs> that they're carrying something internally or even in their mouth, but they get cancer between 33 and 36% of the time. Cats will actually die from cancer, and it tends to be older cats. In the old days when we had leukemia virus uh, pretty rampant in the country, and we used to see a lot of young cats with lymphoma, especially inside their chest cavity, thymus, and lymph glands, and we don't see that much anymore. We see older cats that have more clandestine cancers in their gut from lymphoma, intestinal lymphoma. Is this rate on the increase perhaps because diagnosis is better? Or may, or, you bet. You okay. bet. You know, we're getting much better at diagnosing. We have non-invasive techniques to find tumors. Ultrasound is one of the most important ones. Of course, diagnostic x-rays have been around for a long, long time, more and more used. Ultrasound, now we have CT and MRI scans. And so we're very fortunate to have the ability to look inside of a pet without having to open them up. I have a question, and I think it's maybe one that a lot of our listening audience might have is, I have a lab, Black Lab Max, and he has what our vet diagnosed as a fatty tumor. We call them lipomas. They're full of lipid fat, and they're benign. As long as you have ask your doctor to take a sample, it's called a fine needle aspiration and the doctor just looks at it, and if it looks real greasy, they don't. Even, the doctor doesn't even have to look at the cells under the microscope. But if it looks different than just pure grease, we like to look at the cells. I personally will stain the cells myself and look at the cells to see if and make a determination if it's something abnormal or atypical or malignant. So one in every five lumps that looks and smells and feels like a fatty tumor is not. Wow. So that's why you want to have that sampled. Okay. Now, would you suggest as soon as one notices it, or could one wait? Yeah, uh, you know, because, uh, yeah. you know, as I say, it's a 20% chance that it's not a nice guy. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's a, those are pretty high odds when you're talking about uh, the comfort and the, the life of your um, uh, right. companion, right. animal companion. There's a ma there's a, the most common tumors that we see in dog skin is mast cell tumor, and uh, it's an allergy cell. And uh, it is the biggest killer of all dogs uh, if, of the skin tumor variety. And so because they get away with, you know, with, I would say, murder, because they kind of look like fatty tumors many times, they can even be present for two or three years before they get nasty. We like to make sure that the lump you're looking at is not a mast cell or the other typical cancer. It could be as called a sarcoma. And yeah. that's a connective tissue, tissue tumor. So lumps and bumps need to have a fine needle aspiration. We call it F as in fox, N-A, F-N-A, fine needle aspiration. Well, that's good to know because when I found the one on Max, I was like, wow, what is this? And took him in and um, he was given a clean bill of health. And Did your doctor do an F-N-A? Yes, yes. And Very good. I'm glad to hear that. And... Um, I just worry, now, if they get lipoma, are they apt to get in other lumps or not? Well, uh, Labrador retrievers form lots of lipomas. I mean, I know some labs that have 15 or 20, <laughs> oh, and wow. some of them are quite large. And we don't recommend removing them unless they get in the way of the dog walking or if they seem to be bothering the patient. Okay, we just don't recommend removing them because it's unnecessary surgery. But if you're having the teeth cleaned or another procedure done that requires anesthesia and you want to take a, a fatty tumor off, that's okay. But I just don't recommend, you know, removing every fatty tumor that appears because they're just so common. Okay? 
Okay, that's a relief. Now, you mentioned earlier about cats not showing pain, but I think dogs can be pretty stoic too. And, and dogs show th- pain in different ways. They'll, you know, like if they have a lame leg, they'll lift it up, and people don't think that they're in pain because they're still wagging their tail. I've had people walk in with their dog to see me that has bone cancer, and I say this is the most painful cancer there is, and they say, oh, he's not in pain. And yet the dog is walking on three legs. And so we don't interpret pain properly from the signals that we're getting from our cat or our dog. Uh, I think many people are very sensitive to their pets, but I want all your listeners to know that we can do a much better job. Cats get kind of crumpy when they're in pain. They'll be withdrawn, quiet, still. Maybe they don't jump up on the, the couch like they used to when they have arthritis pain. Dogs may not climb up the stairs like they used to, and you just think, oh, they're being lazy. But what it is is they have pain, and they can't do the things they used to do. Now, what if I'm one of the um, those people whose dog had bone cancer and was lumping, and I bring them in and find out it's quite advanced, and I imagine then there's a feeling of guilt from the human about not recognizing it sooner. What do you say to them? I see this daily, Keith, and I think it's a great question. We naturally want to blame ourselves, you know, for anything, and especially if our beloved pet has a a disease or a condition that we really didn't see the signs. I mean, the signs might have been there, but we really didn't say, oh, this sign equals a visit to the vet, okay? So many times people have told me, oh, I saw a little bit of blood. Oh, I saw the stool was not a normal shape. Oh, I saw her straining to, you know, urinate or defecate. Oh, I saw her fussing with that lump, you know, and and of course the idea, oh, I thought it was just a limping. I thought he was just limping. Oh, I smelled bad breath on the mouth. And oh, I did see some saliva. And sometimes a month goes by because, you know, we all have a busy life. I mean, everybody's just crazed right now, you know, fighting the freeway to get to work (laughs) and then trying to get home and make dinner. And life is really challenging. I'm always surprised when people make it in to see the vet with their dog, I mean, or their cat. It's truly, I appreciate the human-animal bond that people have with their pets because it is a sacrifice to, you know, to come and see the doctor with an animal. But when we feel guilty because we missed a sign or even when pets don't give us a sign, like just the other day, one of my wonderful cancer patients collapsed at the emergency room it was discovered that there was blood around the the sac, in the sac that surrounds the heart. It's called the pericardial sac, and it was filled with blood. And that is all we got. There was no sign. I had seen this dog and listened to her heart frequently in the last three months because she had another kind of cancer. She had mast cell cancer, and we were treating that successfully. But what she had was a tumor on her heart, Mm. and it, it hemorrhaged. And it's called hemangiosarcoma, which is a very common cancer of large dogs, especially German Shepherds and Labradors. And it usually appears as a tumor of the spleen, very occult, very quiet. No one knows it's there. And how we get to recognize that cancer is when the dog passes out. Usually they pass out because their spleen ruptured from this large tumor. The cancer itself is of blood vessel cell walls, okay? Cell wall Mm -hmm. of blood vessels. So it's loaded with blood. It's very friable, meaning that you can just touch it and it'll break. And um, every dog that grows one of those, it's like a time bomb waiting to happen because when it ruptures, typically the patient will lose 10 to 15 to 20% of their blood volume into the belly if it's in the spleen or into the pericardial sac if it's on the heart. And there's no warning. The only warning we have is if we go into our veterinarian about every three, well, when they're older, the pet, the better, the more often, every three months. But if he's over the age of 10, nine, we recommend uh, going in every, you know, six months. And then if they're really old, going in every three to four months to have a checkup and an ultrasound of the belly and uh, even take a quick peek of the heart now that now that we've, we're seeing hemangiosarcoma, we'll see it in over two million dogs this year. That's a lot of dogs. It sure is. It sure even is. Even two and a half million. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, it's a lot. You, you know, you mentioned that. That's what happened to a dog walking friend of ours and his mixed breed dog, large mixed breed dog, is that he was walking in the park and all of a sudden, tiny, the dog just collapsed and uh, before he could get him to help because he wasn't near home or transportation, the dog died. 
There you go. And that's all he got. He might have said, well, he was just a little sluggish. My own dog, I had a beautiful 11-and-a-half-year-old purebred Australian Shepherd named Alfie. He was 11-and-a-half, you know, did his normal thing. Looking back and really trying to titrate, where did I miss my own dog's signs? He was just a tiny bit more reluctant to go for a walk until I gave him his Rimadyl, you know, his little arthritis medicine. He also didn't climb out the window when I was in the car. You know, how does your dogs like to just hang their head out the window? And I shouldn't say, this wasn't even more than a month. He just didn't, you know, push his head out the window. And I'm thinking, because we had another big dog, another gigantic dog at the same time. So I thought, oh, he's just letting the other dog stick his head out. Well, what happened was when uh, a friend of mine who has uh, a veterinarian who could sort of communicate with dogs, she's, she was over at my house for a big party. I had a 25th anniversary for my hospital staff, and she said, oh, Alfie looks a little geriatric. And after everybody left, I said, Dr. Carson thinks you look a little geriatric. And I started palpating and feeling him and doing a physical like I would for a patient. And oh my God, I could feel his mass way mm-hmm. deep in his abdomen. And he looked at me and I, I knew what he was telling me. He says, now I can feel the way I am. He didn't put on a front anymore. And for four days, I did all the diagnostic tests and you know all the cytology, the ultrasound, everything I did. And I decided to open him up see if we could remove the portion of his liver that had the tumor. Uh, but it was all up his gallbladder. It was just going everywhere. And I just, I just, I let him go on the table. Oh, I didn't let wow. him wake up. Wow. And I, I just wasn't sure if he'd be mad at me. But later on, I, I had a, a special communicator that told me that Alfie wasn't mad. Ah, uh, that's you know, good. He, I let him go before he really suffered. But he was feeling pretty poorly the next the few days before I had the surgery done. And, you know, my husband and I knew that if it wasn't something we could help him with, it wouldn't be fair to him to have him just die of this horrible hot cancer. And the, it came back, the biopsy came back, they couldn't even figure out what it was. It was so nasty, so oh. growing so fast. They call oh. it a, a carcinosarcoma. And that means it was mixed with carcinoma, <laughs> which is cancer of the glands, and sarcoma was cancer of soft tissues. Wow. So we don't know. And, you know, I just want your listeners to know that even the doc here, Dr. Alice, had a dog that grew a mass inside the belly. And so feeling guilty is a waste. But what you could do is be interested in having your doctor take a good look inside of your old aging animal. Geriatric care can be so much better. Senior care can be so much better. That's good advice. Now, you developed a universal human-animal bond scale. What is that? Yes, I did. Okay, let me step back to my quality of life scale first. (laughs) I don't know if you ran across that. I am more famous for the quality of life scale that I developed in 2004 It went viral all over the world, and it's available on my website, and people use it to help them make decisions about their ailing pet to improve this criterion or that criterion. I named seven basic important criterion that we need to work at when we're going to take care of a pet in its final journey in the end of life. Whether we're treating a cancer that's, that he can get a complete remission and go back to normal, we still want to pay attention to all these seven criteria. So that scale is, I call it the HUM scale. It's got five H's and it's got two M's. And it's no hurt, no hunger, no hydration problems, hygiene, happiness. Okay, and the two M's are mobility and more good days than bad days. And we score those zero to 10 and we want to have at least 35 on that scale. Hmm. And we always want to shoot for 50 to 70. And so people have been able to really help their pet. And my belief is if we can improve any one of these things where they're failing in by 30 to 50%, the quality of life can be restored. So that's that scale. So when I became that successful, and believe me, they call me the quality of life queen, (laughs) (laughs) I was looking at the human-animal bond situation and how young veterinarians and young people who learn about animal health and world health and they go out into their field and they suddenly come upon the harshness of how animals are treated in the world. And they are often in different societies, in different countries, in different locations, under different circumstances, are really abused or mistreated or ignored or dismissed. And that can happen in even, you know, inner city areas, different cultural viewpoints, etc. within this country. And so I wanted the young, you know, students uh, and students of ethics to see on one page the range that people have in regard to animals, starting with, you know, the pet that we love in our home to animals that we use 
in jobs, you know, uh, therapy animals, to animals like racehorses, to farm animals, to animals that are pests, animals that are invasive species, even insects and birds and the wildlife everywhere in the world. You can think about that. That is a big concept. Yes, <laughs> but it I is. thought about it. <laughs> yeah, I thought about it. And you know, everyone who talks about the human animal bond, at the beginning it was really about the bond we have with our pet. You know, Max, your black lab in your house. Sure. You know, do you have a you know and, and I try to put it at a zero to ten scale. You know, obviously Max has a ten in your house because you worry about him like you would a child. Right. And so but what about, you know, the animals that we have in the feedlots? And our obligation as human caretakers, you know, we are in charge of the whole world. So we have a responsibility, no matter what. We need to treat animals properly, and we don't want them to be abused. We don't want them to have unnecessary pain. Research animals, we have a duty to help them have a good quality of life, especially if they're helping us advance in our knowledge about how to conquer diseases and how to prevent diseases especially with genetic studies, etc. So the Universal Human Animal Bond Scale, it's a huge comprehensive look at, on a scale of 1 to 10, how we regard animals. And it's based upon the attachment. We don't have much attachment to insects. And so that would be zero, for instance. And we have a lot of attachments for Max and Alfie, our pets, and that would be the 10. And so basically, we have that as the vertical axis, and then on the, on the horizontal axis, we have how we regard them so far as our our time that we spend with them, the devotion we have, the concern we have for them, and the responsibility. And so that scale will give people, when they walk out into, like supposing I had to go to England and I had to work against the horrible diseases that we had some dealings with, you know, mad cow disease. Right. And you had right. to slaughter cattle that had 400-year-old pedigrees. How can you rationalize that type of action? When Newcastle disease comes, they want you to kill all your chickens and every bird that's crossing the state lines. And when hoof and mouth disease and blue tongue, there's a lot of diseases that we control by slaughtering the animals that could harbor the disease. And now we're looking at Ebola in humans. And, you know, I don't want to bring that in because I didn't put viruses <laughs> in the animal bond scale. But, you know, you can imagine how veterinarians are highly trained to help the whole world. And so that's what I was trying to do to help with the Universal Human Animal Bond Scale is to show in one page how we relate to species of animals. And then we also, you know, can look at that for ecology and environmental health because if we keep the environment healthy, the animals are healthy. So everything that we do so far as preserving our environment and keeping water clean is going to help the Universal Human Animal Bond Scale. So it's, it's quite comprehensive. <laughs> it sounds it. Now, we're talking about bond. Let's go to the number 10, Max and me, or someone who has a really a family that has a bond with their animal. How do you respond to those in society who may scoff at that family when they have a loss of a much-loved companion animal by saying to the grieving human, it was only a dog or a cat that died. You know, what are you so bummed out for? How do you respond to that? I, I actually, that's a, such a great question, Keith, because I deal with grief every day. I ask, you know, my clients, my families are my clients. The pet is my patient. So veterinarians are a lot like pediatricians. And when one of my patients dies, I play more than just the pediatrician role model. I'm often the person who makes the arrangements for their funeral, their burial, their cremation. I wear the hat of the undertaker. The veterinarian does. I also wear the hat many times of the doctor, the person who is going to help that pet make the transition and have a peaceful and painless passing. So I'm grief counseling a family member, like supposing if Max had a terminal disease and you had to make the decision, I would help you by having you look at the universal human-animal bond scale, look at the quality of life scale, and try to make the decision in Max's best interest. What's best for Max? And what you would come up with many times is say, you know, let's let Max have a peaceful and painless passing without having to suffer to death. And this would be hard for you and your family. And your grief is no different than a grief of a parent losing a child or a spouse, a person losing a spouse or a best friend. The grief is the same. And so that grief is a feeling. And when someone diminishes that feeling because you're grieving over a, a dog or a cat versus a human, they don't understand. 
the relationship that you had with that dog, with Max. They, did, they didn't see the beautiful moments of joy and spontaneity and laughter and pleasure and sports. Our animals, horses, dogs, cats, birds, they bring a tremendous amount of personal joy to our lives. And when that bond, that relationship is ended with that particular animal, we should grieve. If we don't grieve, we're not being ourselves. We're not being real. The most important thing I try to help people adapt to is to have good grief, the grief of pure sadness, and not to have the type of grief of guilt, woulda, coulda, shoulda, I want to blame somebody, you know, because there's so much intensity in grief that if you if you don't grieve easily into the sad part that the relationship is over, it's called maladaptive grief. And we have people who get stuck in those stages of grief, the anger, the denial, those stages, you know, that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross so clearly identified for us. Anger, denial are the first ones where people just get stuck in instead of just accepting our relationship is over. And so one thing I do, Keith, is I, I have my clients sit down with me and I tell them, you know, when you fell in love with Max, you made an agreement with God that you would love Max for his lifetime. And you know that Max... Labrador retrievers live about 10 years, maybe 12. You might get a little more, and some people get a lot less. My Bernese Mountain Dog got lymphoma when he was only four years old. Mm. Okay? So you make an agreement with God for about a decade. Cats, a decade, maybe 12, 13 years. Occasionally, you get to have a decade and a half. (laughs) (laughs) But when the time comes for that pet to leave us, we're still wishing we had more. Yet, you know, you want to defy the agreement you made back when you fell in love with them. So I I try to help people see the cycle of life that dogs and cats are going to come live with us for their lifespan. We're going to live to be about 100. I usually have three pets at a time. I'm going to have 27 major heartbreaks, some worse than others. And I hope that we can take each one of those beautiful heartbreaks and turn it into a jewel of memory that we put on our memory shelf and just love those memories instead of feeling maladaptive grief. That is really so great. I hope uh, our audience um, really, really listens to what you said because, um, you know, that having gone through a lot of those moments, I just feel what you said. But we need to take a break right now. When we, we return, Dr. Alice will discuss palliative medicine and hospice care. And we'll be right back. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Tim Link, animal communicator and pet expert and host of Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have you ever wanted to know what your pet is really thinking? Do you want to find out if they truly understand what you're trying to tell them? Ever wish you could build a better understanding and closer relationship with your pet? Well, now you can. Learning to communicate with animals is a four-part on-demand workshop. In the workshop, you'll learn the essential techniques that are necessary to communicate with animals, including what is animal communication, breathing correctly to achieve the perfect state to communicate with your animals at a deeper level, using guided meditation exercises and method to communicate with animals, and how to send and receive information from your animals. So if you're wanting to learn how to communicate and connect with your animals at a deeper level, visit PetLifeRadio.com forward slash workshop and purchase and download Learning to Communicate with Animals. You'll be glad you did. Hi, I'm Dana Humphrey, also known as the Pet Lady. I travel from coast to coast to pet trade shows and consumer events to scout out what the hottest, hippest, and most unique pet products are on the planet, bringing you tips and tricks from top veterinarians, groomers, trainers on how to safely travel and live happily with your pets. The Pet Lady will be in a city near you, showing off the latest and greatest tech pet gadgets, cozy comforts, and fab gift ideas for man's and woman's best friend. You can learn more at thepetlady.net or connect socially and tweet with me at PetLadyWorld. Hi, my name is Brent Atwater, and I'm the Animal Reincarnation Authority. Join me every week on Alive Again and let me look at your pet's energy to determine if they're going to reincarnate. I'll be able to tell you when they're going to come back and what they look like. So send me your pet's photo and email me your question at brent at petliferadio.com. I'm looking forward to answering your questions on Alive Again. 
every week only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Pet Welcome back to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates. And our guest today is Dr. Alice Villalobos, who is a leading authority on palliative medicine and hospice care for companion animals. Dr. Alice, can you compare the attitude towards palliative medicine and hospice care in veterinary medicine and human medicine? I certainly can. In fact, I've written a paper that appeared in the International Journal of Ethics for Humans. In fact, I can give you the title of the paper and people can look it up. It's called Are Are Veterinarians Kinder Than Physicians at the End of Life? Question mark. And then further on it said, Is Hospice Kinder Than Hospice? Question mark. And uh, the subtitle is A Veterinary Oncologist's Interprofessional Crossover Perspective of Euthanasia for Terminal Patients. And uh, so your question is really a good question, Keith. And uh, let me say... Now, let me ask you, how much time do you think passes by between the time a physician prescribes hospice to their patients and when the person passes on in human gee, medicine? Gee, I don't know. Probably a couple of weeks, I'd think, at least, maybe a month. Three days. Three days? Yep. That doesn't give anyone even time to prepare, really. Right. But that's what's going on in human medicine. Very sad. The ones you hear about are the ones that have been enlightened, you know, the ones that get hospice within three to six months before they die, but it's three days, the average, wow. which, which is, you know, kind of embarrassing, and I'll tell you what happened because of this. It's because insurance and human medicine decided that hospice would not include treating the primary condition, the primary disease. Hospice was equivalent to giving up, and so physicians wanted to write that off because, you know, we're, we're a warrior society, right? We want to fight. Sure. That's normal. And so in human medicine, we thought that hospice was giving up. So people would have referral to hospice three days before they die. So a new branch of medicine came up called palliative care or palliative medicine. And they tried to re-educate physicians that we want to take care of the symptoms which is what hospice wanted to do, you know, take care of the pain and make the patient comfortable. Sure. But palliative medicine was born in 2006, which is not so long ago. It has 10 subspecialties as its parent subspecialties, okay? And um, they will take care of the symptoms. And during palliative medicine, the primary condition can be treated. So if a person has cancer and they are at the end of life, their cancer can be treated, but they're also getting the palliative medicine, the palliative care that hospice originally wanted to provide for patients, and that is to comfort them if they're nauseous, take care of the nausea. If, they, if they're painful, really give them you know, expert pain management. If the person can't walk, they want to have rehab therapy or, or, or somehow facilitate their ability to move etc. So whatever condition that the person was suffering from, even mental fatigue, depression, they would be treated. And that's what hospice was trying to do, you know, with their counselors and their kindness to address all the, the soft things. Sure. In human medicine, you know, the oncology and the, you know, end of life, you know, physicians, the internists, if they're treating cardiology patients, for instance, they often were not able to comfort the patients because they had the next one in line that was just as, you know, a heart failure too. So they just gave them all their heart medicines and sent them home. But if they were in hospice, they would have been more comforted. But then, you know, hospice insurance wouldn't let them have their primary doctor. So that's the trap that happened in human medicine. In veterinary medicine, we don't have those traps. And one of the reasons why I wanted to call my end-of-life practice POSPIS is because we do have the option, in addition to do palliative medicine and take care of the primary problem at the end of life, is that we do give our patients the gift of euthanasia, the gift of a painless and peaceful passing. So it is totally different than, you know, human medicine hospice. Because in hospice, in human medicine, they do not hasten death. And that is a problem in our society. You know, there's a lot of people that would love to have physicians help them die when they're dying. 
And in fact, five states have already made, uh, you know, either legislation or they have had court cases that have set the precedent. Montana and Arizona actually have had court cases that have straightened it out so that physicians can help people die when they're dying. And it's called aid in dying. And then, as you know, Washington and Oregon have legislation. And then recently, Vermont passed legislation that will allow physicians to help people die. And I prefer to call it aid in dying rather than any other term, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's it's dignified. It's dying with dignity. So every state in this union and uh, is going to have legis- you know, some sort of vote here in the next 15 years because the baby boomers want to die right. They don't want to die in a warehouse as a vegetative body being fed through tubes and maintained uh, with absolutely no quality of life. We don't want that. Nobody, and I don't know of anybody that wants to be a vegetative being in a rest home where they're just warehoused until death. And that's what our our system has been promoting. And uh, 80% of physicians and healthcare workers do not want that. And it's only 20% that have been holding out to even the Pope, I have to say, have been holding out due to religiosity and to personal ethical concerns. And, you know, those people, if they happen to be physicians or healthcare workers, they should get off that case and pass the case on to a healthcare worker who will help a person if the two do not agree with how things are going. Like if the patient wants to die, but the doctor has a religious belief that they can't do that, the doctor should beg off. Or if the patient wants to survive, and they can go on to the doctor that wants them to, you know, does not believe in aid and dying. So I'm hoping that I'm answering your question in a what we call interprofessional. Sure. And then back to veterinary medicine because we're here, you know, today because of our dogs and cats. Um, is we are so fortunate as veterinarians to help people make the decision in their pet's best interest. It's often very difficult because we want our dog or cat to live. But we also know that life is not worth living if there's no quality of life or if the quality of life is so to the point that the pet has no joy, no happiness, if the cat doesn't purr. I mean, we don't mind if, uh, you know, a kitty cat or a small dog can't move because you can pick them up and help them. But if you have a great Dane that has bone cancer and uh, arthritis and he can't move, that's really hard for people. So every criterion on the quality of life scale is really relevant depending upon the patient. But if they're dehydrating and starving, you know, because they can't take nutrition and you can't put a feeding tube in to help that pet enjoy life and then stay hydrated and and, uh, stay uh, properly fed, and if you can't control the pain, the pet gets depressed and then they get frustrated because all they see, an animal's psyche, is now, 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 this moment, this moment. And if they have continuous suffering, they get very frustrated. And it's, it's unkind of us to ask them to stay living just for our own satisfaction, our own you know, willingness to make them continue living because we just can't deal with being without them. You know, We have to look at the pet's best interests. And I think that that's what the quality of life scale can help people come around to doing. It's helped a lot of doctors and nurses, uh, you know, veterinary technicians help their family members make the decision to help their pets, uh, you know, it's make a- the decision for the final call. I call it the the final decision, you know, to have the gift of euthanasia. It's interesting you say that because uh, I went through an experience with our daughter. Her dog, Mia, was 13 and uh, old. She was uh, for a, she was a Border Collie mix. So That's Mia? Mia was the Collie? Yeah, Border or, Collie. What's your daughter's name? Christine. Christine, okay. And anyway, she, you know, this dog had meant a lot to her. She had found it. It had been astray, and she had taken it to the pound, and they were going to put it down, and she came back and rescued it, and it lived with her all through college. She went camping with it. Long story short, now it's time, and so I went with her when it came time, and she just couldn't do it, and my question to her is, why do you want her to live, for Mia or for Christine? And that really helped you know, I've put that in a, in a perspective. It does. And, you know, when Christine made the decision, she had to be the person that said it was okay. And you're just trying to help her go through the, the logic of why you're letting Mia go. It's because Mia was going. 
she needs to go because her life was not worth living for Mia. And um, although Christine would have probably wanted another hour, another day, another week, there are books that pet owners have written, just one more day, just one more month. We want them to live because when they're still alive, we feel that we are hanging on to that treasure, that whole treasure of the whole pet's life. But the fact is, the pet's spirit is in a body that's worn and going. And we have to let that spirit leave the body and remember that spirit in our heart and always keep that memory alive. And uh, what I recommend is write a story. Write down who was Mia in Christine's life. Who was Mia? Who were her friends? What did she mean to everybody? Obviously, Mia was Christine's companion. You know, she went to college mm-hmm. camping with her, through college, through everything. And and that's who Mia was. And that's the where she she would wrap Mia up again as a beautiful jewel in her memory box. And and you close that box just like you would close the last page of a book, remembering what a great book that was. When you look at the beautiful flowers that bloomed and you know they're gonna wilt, you just let them go. Like the clouds, you look at them and, and you let them go. And then you go on and stay in present time and create new memories, new relationships. You know, talking to you is, and looking back, my relationship with the veterinarians, who, the doctors who I was their client. You know, one thing I missed, and, and maybe that's because I'm older and, and you're, you're a new way of looking at things, but I guess now I'd ask the uh, veterinarian just what could I expect if I had to bring in Max to be, you know, to end his life? Uh, because my experience has been sitting on the floor crying my eyes out, you know, with the dog in my hand, you know, it's a lap. It was a cold experience. And uh, I'm not saying that the, the uh, doc wasn't unfeeling, but I don't think it was trained maybe to be as uh, sensitive as, as what you're talking about. I have to totally agree with you, Keith, even to this very day, even though I've written chapters, books, I've written I've spoken, I've presented, I still hear how insensitive and how cold that procedure of euthanasia can be at, at veterinary hospitals and emergency facilities. Here is how I, I have envisioned the perfect high-quality death for a pet, the high-quality gift of euthanasia to help the pet die. The first thing, you can bring the pet into the vet hospital or you can have a doctor come to your home. And never, ever would I want that pet to leave your arms, okay? Mm. So, because it's called the bond, okay? And in, right. in a lot of vet hospitals and emergency rooms, they take the pet away from the family and go put a catheter in the vein to the pet. Now, so mm. often, those little pets are so sick and their blood volume is low. It's called hypovolemia. They don't have a vein that the nurses can find to put a catheter in. So, there's some struggling. And that's really sad for the last few moments of life. Sure. This is standard, and I'm sad about that. And I have lectured against it. I do not think that's a good idea. What I like to do is give that pet, while they're in your arms or just sitting on the floor, an injection that will make the pet fall asleep, a sedation, just to relax everybody. It's a two-step procedure, in my opinion, okay? Uh The first step is everybody relaxes when the pet relaxes, right? Right, right. And I tell my families that Mia will will fall asleep. And this is going to be the last thing she sees of you, you petting her, and she knows you love her. She's asleep. We can put the catheter in. You know, if the nurses need to get the catheter in, that's fine. And then house call doctors, I've trained thousands of house call doctors who don't have, you know, the nursing staff and all that to do an intravenous catheter, that we can give the final injection into the pet uh, skillfully so that there's no need to try to find a vein. There's no need. Veterinarians can help the patient die with a final injection. So it's a two-step procedure. Well, that sounds a lot better than what... Yes, yes. Now, I have a question, and it's a question I ask each of my guests, and that is, with so much human misery and suffering in the world, how can you justify spending time, energy, and resources advocating and caring for animals? That's a good question, too. And um, that question was asked me by a very famous Los Angeles Times reporter named Jack Smith. And I didn't know who he was when he came to interview me before I had a big fundraiser for the Peter Zippy Fund, which we'll talk about in a minute. And he said to me, why are you taking care of animals when there's so much misery in this world? 
same question you're asking. And I happened to be surrounded by the patient's charts, all my patient's charts that I had laid to rest or had lost from cancer because I was documenting them, you know, going to turn into my book one day and all that. And I looked at them and I said, you know, the families that own these dogs and cats are the 2%, the 1% to 2% of the world that makes the world move and shake and do. The people who care for their pets are like you, Keith, you know, like me. The people who are listening to this radio show, you're going to care for everything you touch. You care for the world, you care for the environment, you care for your animals. It's your standard of ethic. You would never not care for your dog because you're a caring person. And this is your standard. And veterinary medicine in the United States has a very high level of standard because our whole nation has a high standard. Not everyone can afford it, which is really sad, you know, because it does cost money. And that's where I highly recommend pet insurance and some of the best pet insurance companies. You know, people should look at them. I like Pets Best and Healthy Paws and True Panion. They're really great. And I would definitely tell you that when you care about the world, you care about your pets. It's just there's no difference. Like you could not have Max in your home and Christine could not have Mia without caring. And that just means you're going to take care of their physical body, just like you take care of your own. Well, that's a great answer, and I appreciate it. And it's interesting. Every advocate I've had on has answered that question in a different way, but each way has been heartfelt. Tell me the the other ways. Tell me the other ways. Well, there are different ways, but they all come down to the same. They'll be, well, you can't love pets and not love people, or you can't be for animals and not love the environment and be concerned about, you know, the circle of life and everything. So it comes down really, even though the specific answers are different, the broad answer is very similar because I think that's the only answer. It's Uh, who we are. Yeah, yeah. we are people who care and whatever comes under our flock, we care for. uh, That's the way it is. We're shepherds. Speaking of caring, and you mentioned the Peter Zippy Animal Memorial Fund. Uh, You Mm -hmm. founded that. Can you tell us a bit about this organization? Sure. In 1977, I had a young, you know, young employee, and I was a very young employer at the time. I'd just gotten out of veterinary school, and he died in a plane crash. And uh, I owed him a month's salary because we were just building our clinic, and uh, you know how that goes when you have no money. He said, I live at home. I'm going to college. My parents take care of me. You know, my financial worries I don't have. So why don't you just not pay me this month and go ahead and get the the trees for the (laughs) landscaping? So we did that, and we were planning our open house. And unfortunately, he died in a plane crash in the Torrance Airport with uh, four young people in an airplane. Oh, uh, tragic. It was tragic. And uh, I'm 26 years old. I think he was 25. I had gotten out of vet school, and he was a young man who decided a little later on in his life that he wanted to be a veterinarian. So I was really thinking Peter would go to vet school and then come and work with me in the future. You know, I I just thought he was going to be the cat's meow for his future. And suddenly, you know, he's gone. And I had this check, and um, I was going to cancel the open house. And his parents said, no, Peter would want you to have that open house. That was the most important thing that he was talking about. So we had the open house. His parents came, and I presented them the check. It was $421. I'll never forget. And they said, oh, no, we don't want that check. We want you to do something special for the animals. And so what I did is I went down the next day to the bank, and I started a brand-new account in his name because I knew nothing would be opening in his name after that. And his friends heard about what I did. They donated money. It just sort of grew into this fund. And then about a year or two later, we got a big donation of $1,000. And someone told me, you better make that tax deductible. So one of our friends turned it into a tax deductible 501c3 because we were taking care of all the sea animals, you know, pelicans, seals, everything that was on the coastline. And Peter, you know, when he was alive, he would go and pick them up and deliver them and (laughs) It was just one of those things that I always had this feeling I was going to give back because I was so grateful for my education at UC Davis. I went to local junior college, El Camino. I went to Long Beach State for my third year and then UC Davis. And I I just felt, geez, here I am, a California girl. I got my education and I'm going to give back. And uh, it just so turned into the Peter Zippy Fund became that particular vehicle. And we have around 40 volunteers 
We have fundraisers every year. We've adopted and helped animals of over 14,700 animals so far. Wow. Uh, Wow. Yeah, we have a great group, and we continue to help animals. And uh, we're helping the the overpopulation problem. Most of the animals that we are able to place at the beach area are cats, and our group will help find homes for dogs, but we work with other dog groups. But our group is basically cats and kittens, and um, we help spays and neuters and all that. We, Our organization, my clinic, has recently become a VCA Coast Animal Hospital. I used to have the clinic called Coast Pet Clinic in 1998. I sold the practice to VCA, so it's called VCA Coast Animal Hospital. And that group will do uh, spays and neuters for greyhounds and other dogs and cats from several other organizations that are do uh, adoptions. Where can I find uh, more information on the website? Well, for for my, my POSPICE is P-A-W-S-P-I-C-E. That's the dot .com. Right. Okay, so POSPICE.com. And then the Peter, and that's Z-I-P-P-I fund.com. That's PeterZippyFund.com. And at those two websites, you'll find everything. The quality of life scale is at POSPICE. Universal Human Animal Bond Scale is at POSPIS, and a lot of articles about different kinds of cancers and end-of-life care that we spoke of. And uh, my article about uh, are veterinarians kinder than physicians, it's on that website as well. And then Peter Zippy shows the critters who are available for adoption, mostly cats, and talks a little bit about how it started. Well, that's great. You know, I could keep on talking with you for a long time. What you have said is just so insightful and moving. But uh, you're welcome. This has been great. But uh, we've run out of time. And I want to really thank you so much for taking your time to join us and sharing with us interesting and insightful information. You're so welcome, Keith. And I'm hoping that your listeners and readers, because they will be reading material, will feel that this interview has been helpful to them, and I'll be happy to come back again if you have further questions. Oh, I'd love that. Maybe we can do a catch-up on what you're doing or what has changed uh, sometime down the next few months. And uh, Max A. Pooch gives you five big tail-wagging wolves for what you do. Oh, great, Max. (laughs) Because he knows your work directly saves the lives of dogs and cats. Thank you. And I want to thank Mark Winter, executive producer and co-founder of Pet Life Radio and the sponsors who make this program possible. And please join us for each and every episode of Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates. And be sure to tell your friends about us. Remember, until we meet again, when you do a good thing for animals, you help to make the world a better place. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.